Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I hope the Enterprise D's salon has a really punny name, like the Schizoid Manicure or Perms of Our Surrender. I'm joined on this episode by Matt Baum. Matt is a writer, podcaster, and YouTuber whose work examines the intersection of queer culture and pop culture. He's the host of the Queens of Adventure and the Sewers of Paris podcasts. He's a staff writer for the independent newspaper The Stranger, and his book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love, chronicles the history of the fight for marriage equality. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm still going oof from those puns at the beginning. I, I have a couple more, but I won't share them. Okay, good. <laughs> Dole those out slowly. Yeah. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, permission to come aboard, granted. Today, we'll be talking about The Host, the 23rd episode of the fourth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. The words Star Trek aren't exactly synonymous with romantic adventure. The heroes of Trek are passionate about their jobs, passionate about exploring space and seeking out new life forms. But when it comes to romantic passion, it's a franchise that can often be as cold as the space it explores. Occasionally, though, Trek presents a story that deals with love and romance in the future, a future that we're told is free of the discrimination that still plagues our own era, a future where beings are free to be who they are and date who they choose. But Star Trek was and is made by the creators of the current era, where prejudice and short-sightedness often stymied the franchise's depiction of a galaxy where love is love. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Matt, it's great to have you on the podcast, and I always ask first-time guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? You know, I was talking to my partner about this the other day. I think it might have been Star Trek Four colon the one with the whales. Yeah, the one with the whales. I I remember the reason this came up is because somebody asked me if they'd never seen Star Trek, where should they start? And so James, my partner, and I were discussing this. And for us, Four was the first Star Trek we'd ever seen. And we had no prior knowledge, like independently, like in our in our very youth. Um, neither one of us had any knowledge of Star Trek. And um that's a movie that you can basically jump into with relatively, you know, relatively fresh. There's a little bit of housekeeping up top and then it's just a romp. And yeah. so, you know, totally separately, we both came to the same conclusion that that was a good place to start because it's where I started and it's where he happened to start as well. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and it's a broad comedy that it rewards people who are Star Trek fans. And like you said, I think you can just jump, jump right in and it's no problem. Yeah, yeah. So that's that that was it for me. And then Next Generation came along shortly after that. And uh, I was hooked. Yeah, I, I thought I read recently that uh, you and your family uh, waited in line to see Star Trek Generations. Yeah, yeah. As a, as a family, when it came out, um, somehow I had obtained a copy of the script through some sort of Internet means at the time. I don't oh, remember what it was. Okay. Yeah. And um, I think it must have been through a friend of a friend. And so I was kind of prepared for what we were going into. And I was very excited. And I remember we all stood in line. We all watched Star Trek as a family for years. The, wow. And all of Next Generations we watched together. And then when the movie was coming out, we all stood in line. We all had our pin-on communicator, our comm badges. We were all wearing <laughs> yeah. comm badges. Yes. And yeah, that's that was how I saw Star Trek with my family. The, a very nerdy family outing. I guess it was, yeah. I wish my family was into anything that I was. I can't even imagine <laughs> them doing something like that. At least they listen to this show to humor me, I guess. Oh, that's nice. That's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. Your book, Defining Marriage, uh, charts the progress of the movement for marriage equality in America, and it features interviews with people who are on the front line of the fight for gay marriage, as well as celebrities and government officials. And I can't imagine what an effort it must have been to try to organize and tell a story like this that involves so many people and so chaotic. 
Yeah, well, you know, I was in a lucky position because I'd worked on the Prop 8 trial, which was the, the basically the gay marriage trial in California. And yeah. so I had a lot of contacts with folks. And in working on all that legal stuff, often we'd just be like sitting off to the side, making small talk or conversation. And I'd hear these incredible stories about people who'd been in the fight for, the, you know, their country to recognize their relationships for decades. And I was yeah. like, these, this is incredible, the, the passion that these people have had to muster to, you know, fight for year after year after year. Um, so I wanted to tell their stories. And, and that's uh, that's what defining marriage is. Yeah. I know you talk in the book as well about how researching and writing about this topic influenced your own opinion about same-sex marriage. Not to spoil the book, but how did your opinion evolve? Well, you know, when I started writing it, uh, when I was working on the trial, I was kind of like Mr. Gay Marriage because I was a very public face of doing a lot of the communications and I was appearing in videos and stuff for the, uh, you know, around the, the lawsuit. Yeah. And I'd been in with my partner at that point for a little over a decade. And I was kind of feeling like a crisis. Like, why aren't we married? Or even like, why don't we want to get married? Shouldn't we? Isn't this something we should want? And, mm -hmm. you know, in, in that process of being going to court and, you know, raising millions of dollars so that we could go to court and fighting, fighting, fighting and going to fundraisers and going to rallies and marching and all that stuff. Um, I really gained an appreciation both of the moral imperative of having legal equality, but also of the reasons to be uh, critical, radically critical of the institution and to value the relationship that you have uh, regardless of uh, government recognition. So yeah. important to have, but also important to exercise the right to say, you know, to, to, to have the freedom to say, yes, I want this or no, I don't want this. And you yeah. know, to, to actually, you know, make good on that choice. Yeah. The freedom to, to not, but exactly. be able to, yeah. if you want to. Yeah. On your YouTube channel, you talk about pop culture and media and specifically about milestones for LGBT visibility and acceptance. And I noticed that a lot of what you talk about are sitcoms. I think everybody could probably think of an episode of a sitcom from the 80s or 90s where um, somebody has a gay co-worker or a gay family member and they're introduced and hilarity ensues. Uh, why was that a popular device for sitcoms to employ? Well, that's a great question. And, it you know, it's certainly not limited to sitcoms. I just did a video about um, Garrick and Bashir on DS9 yeah. and all the queer subtext with them. But I think um, sitcoms really lend themselves well to a couple things. One is they're just fun. They're, like, easily accessible and people like them. Yeah. And it's fun to laugh. But yeah. also as a... Um, as television goes, they're relatively, compared to other shows... Um, easier to make than say like an hour long drama or something like that, or, you know, made for TV movie. So, and sitcoms, there's just a lot of them. So I think they lend themselves to whatever the um, conversations or social anxieties or people, whatever people are worried about uh, at the time or is on their minds. Sitcoms are pretty rapid about, you know, taking advantage of that opportunity and addressing them. So, you know, you see stuff like in the seventies, all in the family, very topical show is like, yeah, all right, yeah. people are talking about the gays. What about the gays? Let's, let's put a drag queen on the show. And where you see Frasier, Frasier, like, you know, that was a show where they were like, Oh, a lot of people seem to think Frasier is gay. Well, let's play with that on an episode where his boss thinks he's gay and thinks that they're going on a date. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's easy yeah. to talk about this stuff because there's just so much of it. And sitcoms are really good at being um, responsive to whatever people are, are concerned about at the time. Yeah, because they, they mostly take place in the now. Uh, something else I was thinking that, you know, in the case of sitcoms, you usually have a main character or characters on the show 
who almost always stand in opposition to the world of the show. So you can create humor from that tension. And, you know, they're they're reacting negatively to something every episode. Archie Bunker is a great example of that. But by the end of the episode, they're reconciling with whatever the issue is, is going that's going on. And they're learning a lesson. And, you know, introducing a gay character fits right into that pattern. So the main character re-examines their preconceptions and there's a there's a positive message of acceptance by the end of the show in most cases it usually doesn't mean that the gay character is going to stick around or that they won't do gay jokes next week but you know it's it's something i guess yeah i I think that's true uh you know sitcoms are really tight little plays and you have a good dramatic situation you want to see some change and evolution in the main character so uh that's why you see something like i don't know golden girls when blanche starts the episode not wanting her brother to be gay and reaches an understanding with him at the end of the episode that well he's still my brother and i i gotta be good to him right yeah and maybe she's not all the way there but yeah she's 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 learning learning a lesson yeah yeah I think episodic TV is is inherently, uh, at least in its presentation, a moral medium in that way. I, you did a video on Quantum Leap, uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorite shows from back in the day. And there, it's an episode where Sam leaps into a situation where a, a classmate is dealing with his identity and his orientation. And Sam's sidekick, Al, is immediately uncomfortable about Sam helping this kid with being gay. And there's some mildly homophobic comments from Al. And it takes until the resolution of the episode for him to really reevaluate his prejudice and change his mind. Uh, about the situation and I can't remember if Quantum Leap ever went back to to that well and dealt with uh, LGBTQ topics but I think the show was a fairly progressive show in the Star Trek mold yeah I think seldom did anything queer come up on Quantum Leap there's another episode I want to say with I think a a bisexual murderer or something like that it's not great great fantastic you know like we were saying before um, often uh, sitcoms or TV shows in general are little time capsules of when they're made. And so you can, even if they're set in a different time period, you kind of peel back the the layers and you can see like, oh, well, this was definitely written and directed and produced yeah. in the era that it comes from. And whether yeah. that takes the form of, you know, reflecting prejudices of the time or just the uh, very dated hairstyles of the time, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Those, they, they preserve a certain um, quality of the, of, of their making. Yeah, that applies to shows set in the future as well. Very, yeah, very much. <laughs> I think it's I think it's fascinating that we've all seen regressive views of of homosexuality, gay characters portrayed on TV shows and sitcoms, maybe movies, and they shouldn't be let off the hook. But I love the positivity of a lot of your videos and the way that you show you know the actual seeds of some progressive ideas in some of the storylines. Well, thanks. And you know, I, I make those videos over on on my YouTube channel. Uh, about the history of queer milestones in TV and film. I make them because I'm a fan. I love this stuff. I love talking yeah, about sitcoms. Yeah. I love the old movies. I love old entertainment stuff and history. So, you know, I, there's definitely, I, I could take a gotcha approach and be like, they could have been better. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I certainly, I'm the first that's to so say popular, that especially That's so popular on YouTube, uh, especially today, is everybody is, um, you know, putting their master's degree to work and sort of like deconstructing <laughs> everything. And it's usually... Uh, it, like you said, it's usually a negative sort of thing, but I like the fact that we can find something in uh, the Golden Girls or, or Maud or something like that that is um, is a little bit uplifting. Yeah, yeah. Being a critic doesn't just mean being like, um, and, and being critical doesn't mean this is bad and here's how it's bad. It also means <laughs> yeah. like, what is the meaning of this and how did this happen? I, I think that's really the question I'm trying to get to is, is how did this happen? And that doesn't mean like, you know, turning the show into the villain. It means looking at the the history and like what was going on behind the scenes and the stories of the people who made the thing uh, yeah. the, the way that it is and the way that we love it. 
Yeah. One of the themes that comes up again and again in your channel, and I think in discussions about LGBTQ characters in media, is the importance of visibility and uh, queer viewers, viewers being able to see themselves in the shows and the films that they watch. And I think it's, it, you know, it's something that Trek has struggled with itself, you know, in an oblique way. It's kind of related to the episode we're talking about today. And Trek, you know, which is a universe designed by Gene Roddenberry to be free of prejudice in its society, has lagged for most of its history in putting LGBTQ characters on screen. Yeah, it's a real shame. And a little bit of that is being a product of the time that it was made, um, particularly going back to the original series. But also, you know, the more I've dug into the history of Star Trek and the making of Next Generation in particular, I just released a YouTube video about this. Um, the more I can see the... Um, difficult position that the showrunners, including Gene, were in when Next Generation yeah. happened. Um, yeah. You know, being torn between wanting to protect the show that was not doing great at first. Next Generation really struggled. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 taking a, a move as bold as they maybe ought to have could also have put them in real jeopardy. Yeah, I, I think that it's hard to to be equanimous about that when you when you're just mad about the fact that there's just no gay characters in this uh, accepting universe. Um, your most recent video that you mentioned before, it's called Star Trek's First Gay Shipmates, and it addresses the the Garishir ship, the Bashir mm -hmm. and Garrick relationship, and the intention of some of the writers and even the actors in wanting to make a relationship between them a reality and how it was nixed um, by the higher-ups. And something we've been talking about a lot on Enterprising Individuals recently is about representation as we see it in Trek. And something I've noticed is that there are a number of, of gatekeepers who pointedly kept... Uh, certain series from exploring those issues of people that we've talked about or that we'll talk about today. And these people were ironically the people who were charged with protecting Gene's vision. And you can hear the quotes there. And Roddenberry was, <laughs> he was a man who was not a saint, but I think he wanted to be. And he wanted to create a world where people had achieved that. They, they, they freed themselves from prejudice and the problems that plagued the years that he lived in. And after TNG was up and running, he had to step away from the production because of his health, and he put other people in charge of his legacy, people like Maurice Hurley and Rick Berman. But the more that I read about, like, the times that he was, you know, leaving the show and, and, the, and the fights that they had, you know, he, he himself was already running into pushback against some of the progressive ideas he wanted to have in the show. You know, he's having arguments with Hurley over things he wants to do, and Hurley's telling him, well, these don't fit in with the guidelines that you gave me. You know, I'm, I'm protecting, you, you know, your future, your wacky doodle future. And I just, you know, I wonder about... Uh, the effects of, you know, those gatekeepers and what we would have had if we had had, you know, if Rick Berman wasn't around and somebody says, yes, let's do it. Like, would it really have hurt the show that much? Yeah. You know, it's really hard. Like as Iris Stephen Bear says in the, what we left behind documentary, yeah, where that could have gone, who the hell knows? It is a shame like that, that lost opportunity of um, addressing, you know, in the episode, the host or, you know, later with Garishir and, you know, um, with the outcast and other episodes, uh, Throughout the franchise, um, boy, oh boy. And, and even like, you know, Kate Mulgrew said that she she really pushed for uh, them to pick up a gay yeah. character. Yeah. And they just didn't. And gosh, um, you know, a lot of that comes home to to Rick Berman. Um, he's been accused by a lot of people of, and, you know, credibly behind the scenes of standing in the way of that stuff. Um, yeah. What a bummer. What 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 a bummer that, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, simultaneously he's there to protect Rick's vision, which I think, uh, Gene's vision, and um, <laughs> it's Freudian, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's there to protect the, the vision of the show. And yeah. the show has a 
beautiful legacy of having broken a lot of boundaries in the 60s. And oh man, the, the you know that that the one thing, the one thing of that legacy that they weren't willing to do um, to to give us some good solid not just queer representation but um, queer authorship like you know have openly queer people in positions yeah. uh, in creative positions behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, boy, you know that 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 would have been great. You, you had you had Dorothy Fontana writing. Uh, for for Star Trek for you know all the way back to the beginning and you know I think you can see for all its faults that Star Trek is something that had the input of women and mm -hmm, it would have mm -hmm, been nice mm -hmm. if you could also see that it had the input of people who could be openly queer in the writers room. Yeah, and you talk about this in your most recent video and a lot of your videos and people should definitely uh, check out your videos on YouTube. Let's talk about your podcast, particularly the Sewers of Paris, which you've been doing for a while now. What do you talk about on the Sewers of Paris? Yeah, I've been doing, gosh, for maybe five years or so. Um, yeah. uh, so that show is, it started out as sort of an investigation into the, the the queer canon. Like, what are the shows and books and songs and movies that, um, quote unquote, every gay person should be aware of? Um, you know, and so on every episode, I have a different guest on to talk about the entertainment that changed their life. What was the piece of media that that shaped you the most as a person? Um, and it started off just talking to gay men. Now it's it's expanded to, to queer people in general. Mm -hmm. And I have gotten so many fascinating stories about really unexpected pieces of media. Sometimes it's, you know, maybe something you'd expect like Madonna or Oscar Wilde. And then other times it's some um, obscure action movie, or I just talked to somebody today <laughs> for whom it was Beatrix Potter and the Brady Bunch. And, okay. <laughs> you know, I never know. I never know what I'm going to get from folks. Um, and I, people just really open up and they're so generous with their time and personal details to you know, tell me about the, um, you know, the, the stuff that binds us together as a culture, a pop culture that binds us together and, and helps us relate to each other. Yeah. It's such a fascinating exploration to be like, okay, it's it's cool that we enjoy this. Why do we enjoy this, and what did it do for us? Like, you yeah. know, what, why did Star Trek make you the person you are today? I've been thinking about this for myself. Having I'm working on a uh, video about the Muppet Show. Um, <laughs> wow, okay. Fraggle Rock, really. I think there's no other piece of media that shaped me as much as Fraggle Rock uh, as a person. Interesting. And so, yeah, and, and so when that comes up for me, like, what's the piece of media that made me who I am? Fraggle Rock. Why? Why? Why would? <laughs> why did it do that? And and what's there and, and how do I, I don't know, tell the story of what that did and, and recommend it to other people. So that's yeah. what Sewers of Paris is about. That's, that's fascinating. And I think you're helping me uh, as well, because I've just thought about the fact that I watched the Muppet show from a very young age and went on to do theater and musical theater and also interview people and talk to guests. And it's like, oh, maybe I'm trying to be Kermit, trying to recreate the, mm. the Muppet show and like the things that I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also got another podcast, Queens of Adventure, where where real world drag queens play Dungeons and Dragons uh, as their drag sonas. And I know too that you've been streaming live role playing on YouTube. And RPGs and live streams of games have become very popular in recent years, uh, which is very different from when I was a weekly player as a young man. You know, we had to hide the fact that we liked role playing games. What do you think has changed, and why do you think it's become so mainstream? Boy, that is like a great mystery. I think there's a couple of factors behind that. One is um, that I, I think really the question is, why did it take so long? Uh, because <laughs> well, sure. games are fun. People like to play games. Uh, nerd, stuff that is like, quote unquote, nerdy uh is cool actually like this having a passion and getting really excited and invested in something um the stuff that i don't know maybe like uh, a decade or two ago people would have been made fun of uh for liking now i think it's a lot easier just to admit like 
oh, this is this is cool. We all enjoy. We can like what we like. I don't know what changed. Mm. I don't know why that happened. Um, I think there might just have been a shift where we reached a critical mass where people were like, um, I'm just going to enjoy myself having a good time. And uh, <laughs> yeah. all that like baggage that didn't need to exist in the past uh, around, you know, it's it's not cool to like something. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, who has the time? Who is it? Life's too short to, to convince <laughs> yourself that uh, there's that, that you should restrict yourself from the things that you enjoy. Yeah. It's a, fu- it's fun to be a dragonborn ranger. Don't hold back. Yeah. For sure. Get out there. <laughs> In addition to streaming RPGs, I know you stream on Twitch as well, streaming video games. And even though we've seen an increase of LGBTQ characters in TV and film, seeing more gay characters in video games still seems like it's a ways away, apart from indie titles. Uh, there have been some big strides recently with games like The Last of Us and the very popular Life is Strange series. But why do you think that video games lag behind with gay characters? That's another great question. Um, I was just talking to somebody in the industry about this. Um, I, I will say games have made a lot of strides over the years, over the last decade in particular. Things have gotten yeah. a lot better. We were in a, a pretty dark place for a while there with, with games. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think you, you hit on part of it by pointing out that indie games are really taking the lead here. Um, I think in part it's because people who work in games generally are really pa- like you have to be really passionate about about games and fun and playing. Um, And those are folks who, by and large, I think that the makers, whether they're in the indie space or the the AAA space, uh, I think they want to, you know, the the folks are in there because they like to have fun. They want more people to have fun. They want to make things that are enjoyable. And the more you look at how being inclusive and diverse, uh, how that welcomes more people in, when people see themselves in games, they're like, oh, I can play this. This, I'm welcome here. I can do this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that, like, for one thing, it's just a good feeling. And then, you know, not to be too crass about it, but you follow the money. And uh, the more inclusive and the more welcoming a game is, the more people can access it. Of course, the more people are going to be able to play it and the more people are going to want to spend money on it. So certainly, I think I think that's a big part of it as well, that the people who were the gatekeepers in the past, the people who were like, no, it's got to be just just me, just my, my demographic is the only one that should be represented. <laughs> yes. uh, I think, to be frank, those people are aging out of the core demographic of gamers and um, a new group of people is coming in who are not interested in keeping games exclusionary. Yeah. Star Trek seems like it would be perfect for video games, and there's been a number of Trek games over the years. None of them has reached modern classic status or or blockbuster hit status in the same way that Star Wars games have. Why do you think it's hard to make a Star Trek game? Oh, man. I think one of the things that makes Star Trek Star Trek is the ideas and the speeches and the the philosophy. (laughs) Press press X to speechify. Yeah, so that's a tough thing to, to replicate. Um, in, in, in game form, which is why I think, you know, you see a lot of the Star Trek games that are out there are, you know, like build your, build a spaceship and do space battles, which really isn't what Star Trek is. I don't think that's what a Star Trek fan is. I mean, Star Trek fans may be interested in that, but it, it feels almost like, you know, kind of an off-label use of the franchise of the, of yeah. the IP. Yeah. So I think the closest I've ever got to playing a game that felt like real Star Trek to me was maybe it was like 1993 or so and uh it was on a dial-up bbs if you can cast your mind back to the (laughs) days when you would have a modem attached to the computer and you would dial a local phone number and connect to a text only scrolling screen of of you know just 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 text just text right right and there was um 
I'm not sure if it was a role-playing game or what, but um, it was a game where you had a spaceship and you would fly around the galaxy and you'd go to star bases. And um, it was not, I don't think, I think it was a pretty asynchronous game. Like only a couple people could be connected to a BBS at a time, I think. Uh And um, something about that felt very natural to me. Like it felt like Star Trek um, for reasons I can't really put my finger on. I think it was just that, maybe it was the times being what they were it just seemed suddenly so much more vast than any other kind of game i had ever played and that is sort of a a feel that i got from star trek that the universe is incredibly vast um that's i think something that's hard for a game to to replicate unless you are you know getting online for the first time in your life which is an experience you only have once yeah yeah that vastness is i mean it's hard to replicate as we've seen in some of the open world games that have come out recently i remember playing um i never really picked up on the point and click adventures of uh star trek's earlier years which i think you know point and click adventures aren't really in vogue right now but i think those are well suited to star trek but i remember playing the um star trek uh, the next generation of final unity on tng or on uh nes <laughs> wrong wrong acronym mm-hmm. and uh in, in it, you could, you know, you, you there's a series of missions, you have to fly to different planets, but you could go into the database of the Enterprise and you could go to uh, Beta Orionis, uh, A, B, C, D, E, you know, to I. And if there was nothing there, you could fly there and the ship would just sit there and you'd be like, okay, now what? And because I didn't have a, a Nintendo Power Guide or something like that to tell me what to do, I ended up just going through all the different planets, all the different letters. And putting the game down. So vastness, uh, you know, can be bad sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you need to guide the player to where they're going and not give them too many options. Yeah, that, that is a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the, you know, the final frontier has a lot of emptiness. I guess it's easy to just program the ship makes a noise. You fly to planet B, planet C, and they thought that was a good idea. But yeah, I, I got totally lost in that game. <laughs> well, you you love Star Trek. You're into role playing games. You're a gamer. I know you like comics too, and you write a comic column for the for the for the uh, for the stranger. Uh, these are all my interests. I'm amazed that we haven't talked previously. Yeah, <laughs> you're in Seattle, so I'm guessing you've been to Emerald City Comic Con a few times. Yes, a few times. I, I missed it last year when and everything had to go away for a little while. Yeah, I'm really yeah. excited for stuff like that to come back. Yeah, me too. Um, that's where I was inspired to become a podcaster and a, and a journalist. Oh, cool. Long story, won't tell it here, but I'm glad to have you on the show. Why did you want to talk about the host today? Well, so the host, uh, for one thing, it's been on my mind lately because I've been researching this video that I just put out about Garrick and Bashir and queer representation in general. Yeah. And the host is kind of notorious for having an ending that was, for many viewers, uh, a, a bit of a cop-out um, when when it aired and so i wanted to revisit that and and basically just see how it holds up um it's also like a like you observed earlier kind of unique in that it's one of the rare next generation episodes that really is concerned about romance rather than diplomacy although uh, there is diplomacy involved in romance but yeah specifically uh romance in this case the episode features the trill and it's fascinating to me how the trill have become in in modern discourse with the modern reading a stand-in for uh, same-sex love, as well as being gender fluid or or trans, which I'm guessing was not the intention from the original writers. 
But Trek has always dealt in metaphor when it discusses social issues. Uh, and if we you know, don't have gay characters or gender fluid characters on the show, we've got the trill. Um, and in your excellent video about the DS9 episode Rejoined, you talk about the, the use of metaphor in Trek and in sci-fi and how it stands in for real life people and issues and how once you do a metaphor for same-sex attraction or non-cis characters, instead of just having those characters, you kind of get trapped into that metaphor. And it wasn't until recently that Star Trek was willing to actually have real deal gay and lesbian and non-binary and trans characters on the show on uh, Discovery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on one hand, I do kind of feel like, well, better late than never. But also, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, they did have a shot with the host. And, you know, I think on one hand, it's a little disappointing that they didn't go further. But on the other, they did set themselves up. They at least opened the door if they didn't step through. That's true. Yeah. In that sort of sci-fi metaphor way. And another problem you run into with the idea of the metaphor, especially in a, in a perfect world like Star Trek, is that... Um, you know, people, those gatekeepers we talked about, they have the excuse of, you know, in their world, it's not a big deal. So why would we show it? You know, why would we do a very special episode? I think Rick Berman was quoted as saying, you know, we don't show straight people holding hands. Why would we show gay people holding hands? And I suppose that's true in premise. But, you know, even shows like Discovery, I think, admirably found a way to to do both by having a character like Adira, who is still figuring out their identity. And there's a great scene with her and Stamets. He's a gay man. Adira is a trill host, but also somebody who's figuring out their non-binary status. And they correct his pronoun use. And he gets what binary is. You know, it's not some alien thing. This is the enlightened future. And some viewers can get mad about it, but I'm guessing that that was very instructive for a lot of people who had questions. Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating to see um, when media is sort of a queer 101 for viewers who might not otherwise <laughs> yes. encounter stuff. Dragon yeah. Age did a great, Dragon Age Inquisition did a good job. Oh, yeah. Character yeah. of Prem. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Um, we've talked about the dearth of LGBT characters in video games, and another lack that I see, uh, especially not only in video games, but in TV and films, is bisexual characters anywhere. Mm. And and Trek is no exception to that. And when we do get it, it always falls into that trope of the depraved bisexual, you know, amoral characters like the Intendant or Emperor Jojo, who are down for anyone and anything. Um, forget seeing bisexual men. You're, you're just not going to see that at all. What, what do you think causes the gap in bisexual representation? You know, I think part of it is just cultural biphobia. Also, I think there's an <laughs> yeah. additional layer with television because so many um, dramatic situations um, or, you know, comedic or otherwise rely on a um, misunderstanding or some sort of uh, mismatch of expectations. And uh, either, you know, I was going to sleep with them, but I can't sleep together. And I thought he was attracted and I thought she was attracted, something like that. And when you have a bisexual character, um, who, for whom, you know, attraction is not necessarily contingent on gender, then I think that actually rules out a lot of opportunities for conflict or for comedic misunderstandings. Uh, huh. Because it's like, oh, I thought you were straight. No, I thought you were gay. Well, it doesn't really matter. I'm bi. I'm attracted to both genders or I'm pan. I'm attracted to many genders. Yeah. Um, suddenly, like, the, the drama is a lot harder to write. So I think, uh, you know, it's kind of a cop out, but I think for many writers, uh, a bisexual character presents a challenge that they are, for one thing, unprepared for because they just haven't encountered openly bisexual people. But I think they're yeah. also unprepared for the challenge because uh, it is easier to have somebody who is only attracted to one gender, uh, to, to have a character, to create drama and conflict out of that. Um, right. That's not to say that it can't be done. There are plenty of ways to do drama and conflict and have a character who's bisexual yeah. on any show. But, yeah. um, you know, I think often it relies on 
shows often rely on a storyline involving attraction. There's somebody who is who is not the right gender for an attraction, and and that's often right. where they go. So yeah. I, I think that's one of the factors. We have to limit this character so we can make some conflict out of this. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're talking about the TNG episode of The Host, the 23rd episode of the fourth season of TNG. It first aired on May 13th of 1991. It was written by Michelle Horvat, and Horvat has the writing credit. Uh, presumably, he pitched the initial idea of this ambassador who is a symbiotic being. But the final script was written by Jerry Taylor. And as far as I can tell, this is Horvat's only writing credit, but he did produce and direct a documentary in 2005 called We Are Dad. It's about a gay couple who are pediatric AIDS nurses that become foster parents to infants who are HIV positive, and they decide to challenge the state of Florida's law banning adoption by gay people. And the doc was nominated for a GLAAD Media Award in 2006. Today, Horvat is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the LA area, specializing in individual and couples counseling, as well as LGBTQ affirmative therapy. The episode was directed by Marvin V. Rush. This episode was Rush's first episode for Trek. Previous to this, he was a director of photography for TNG, and he would continue in that role through the end of Enterprise. He would go on to direct two episodes of piece of Voyager and Enterprise, including Favorite Son, which we've talked about on the show previously. The star date for this episode is 44821.3. And your assignment, Matt, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of the host. Ooh, okay. Uh, let me think about that. 25-word synopsis <laughs> of the host. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's going to be hard for me to count my words, but... That's okay. Uh, let's, see how, let's see how we do. Ballpark. Beverly falls in love with a... <laughs> creature who is not what it seems and there are questions about the nature of love and attraction how's that, that that's great yeah okay that's good that that's yeah that's very descriptive but open-ended at the same time it's a good pitch <laughs> thank you uh, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode, and uh, feel free to jump in with anything you'd like to add. The working title for this episode was E Pluribus Unum, which is, of course, Latin for Out of Many One, which I guess is a good title, but I think the host works fine. Brandon Braga called this episode, quote, the most repulsive story ever pitched to us, end quote. And about the story itself, he said, quote, being in love with somebody is not very fresh. Having the parasite as the host is... Conversely, Ronald D. Moore said of the episode that centering the story on Beverly is what made it work. He said that a lot of freelancers would pitch the show and would focus on the negotiations plot and the parasitic creature, for instance. But, quote, when it becomes a Beverly problem, who's in the position with this problem, and to some extent Riker, that's how it became a Star Trek story, end quote. This episode shows that there is a salon in the previously seen barbershop area, and this is, of course, the first appearance of the Trill in Star Trek. The Trill symbiont design was based on both a caterpillar and an octopus, uh, which I could see. The Trill makeup, which is different than most fans recognize in this episode, was originally tested and shot on Terry Farrell for DS9, but after a day or two, they decided that it didn't work and the design was changed. Plus, you're going to cover up that face? I don't think so. Gates McFadden was seven months pregnant during the filming of this episode, which meant a lot of effort was put into concealing that, like having her wear her lab coat the whole time, uh, putting things over her abdomen, or shooting from the chest up. Ironically, it's the character Odin that we see with a swollen belly in the episode. And of course, there's the whole thing about removing another being from various characters' stomachs. Mm -hmm. And the shuttlecraft in the episode is named The Hawking, in tribute to Stephen Hawking, who would cameo later in the season six episode, The Descent. Uh, this is that uh, the holodeck poker game that Data is having with all the famous scientists. Oh yes, I remember. I remember it well. Isn't it, is Isaac Newton's in there? I think. 
Isaac Newton is there. That's right. Yeah. And uh, Einstein, I believe. Mm -hmm. And of course, Stephen Hawking. Let's talk about the guest stars in this episode. Barbara Tarbuck appears as Lika Trion. Tarbuck would appear as Kalev in the Star Trek Enterprise first season episode, Shadows of Pajem. Tarbuck was a fixture in New York theater, and she has over 100 IMDb credits to her name, including recurring roles on series like Dallas, Falcon Crest, and Santa Barbara. She played the role of Mother Superior Claudia in the second season of American Horror Story, and she appeared in the feature films Curly Sue, Short Circuit, S. Darko, and the remake of Walking Tall. She passed away on December 26th of 2016. Nicole Orth Palavinci appears as Kareel Odin. Her sisters Terry Orth Palavinci and Karen Akers are also actresses. She appeared in regular roles on One Life to Live, All My Children, and The Soap Loving. She also lent her voice to the video games The Longest Journey, Vice City Stories, and Manhunt 2. William Newman appears in the episode as Callan Trose. Newman was a perennial guest star in films and TV shows over his 40-year career, as well as acting with various regional theater companies. He also served as an artist-in-residence at Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. He passed away in 2015 at the age of 80. And I don't know if we've ever talked about Nurse Ogawa on the podcast before, but let's do it. Uh, Patty Yasutaki appears as Alyssa Ogawa. Nurse Ogawa would appear in 16 episodes of TNG from the fourth season on, as well as in the feature films Generations and First Contact. Ogawa first appeared in the fictional future of the episode Future Imperfect, but she was added as a regular in the episode Clues. Yasutaki got her start on a 1985 episode of T.J. Hooker, and she would appear in both the film and TV series versions of Gung Ho in 1986. She's been a frequent TV guest star across her career, appearing on series like Judging Amy, Crossing Jordan, and Grey's Anatomy, and she was the voice of Mai Lin in the game Bioshock Infinite. And finally, Frank Luz appears as Odin. Luz also appeared in the feature films When Harry Met Sally and Don Juan DeMarco, as well as having guest appearances on the TV series Sisters, Matlock, and who's one of the leads in the 1989 series Free Spirit. Well, let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of the episode. And when we first got in touch uh, to have you on the show, I know that you expressed interest in talking about the DS9 episode Rejoined, which we'd covered on the show previously. But uh, you also talked about the host, which is an enterprise that, like Rejoined, is often brought up when talking about representation in Trek. Though, as as we mentioned before, uh, Rejoined is often praised for its uh, LGBTQ elements, and the host isn't always viewed so kindly by fans. Yeah, there have been um, there, there have been complaints. I guess we'll put it that way. I do think it is a great episode. Um, I I like it a lot. I think it's fantastic. Um, I I have. Um, I don't know, notes. <laughs> there, there are things that I think uh, could have been done differently, but uh, I, overall, I think it's, uh, I'd put it in, I don't know, I'd put it in my top, my top 50. I, I also, th- I also think that it's good. Um, I think that the the whole conflict with like the two moons and the planet um, is never really gotten into. And of course, it's probably not really important. It's just sort of sci-fi window dressing. And there's this thing that they don't, they're losing it in the fourth season of the show, but they're still kind of doing where, uh, it's I call it like the great man theory of TNG, where you have this guest character come on, mm. and he's really great, and everybody's like, "Wow, this old this only this guy could do this job," mm-hmm. and uh, and we've got to help him however we can. And sometimes it pays off, like something like Sarek, and other times it doesn't. Something like The Hunted, where uh, Roka Danar is like the coolest guy, you know, in Star Trek, and. Odin is, is like, once he becomes Riker, I feel like that gets magnified a lot because we already like Riker and now he's uh, he's telling everybody what to do and he's 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 wowing all the, um, the, the people who are in the negotiation with facts about their lives and stuff like that. And I, I kind of wish that that the um, the hookup between 
Riker and uh, Riker as Odin and Crusher was the midpoint instead of like the uh, the sort of act right before the end. Like there was more um, more focus on whether he was going to stay or if he could stay in Riker, and then that what, what would that mean for her relationship with him? Because that part kind of gets totally glossed over, not totally, but once she talks to Troy and um, her feelings start to change, uh, she goes to him and it never really becomes an issue until Odin has to leave Riker's body. And then we've got a different issue to, to deal with. That's true. There's, um, I don't know, like, I think one of the, one of the difficulties with the episode is like, what exactly is going on internally with Beverly? I think a lot of it has to be communicated with the performance rather than through dialogue. Um, which is one of the reasons, actually, I think that the episode is so good. It's so seldom that we get to see Gates really act like she's acting. Like, she gets a, yeah. so much to do in this episode. Her and yeah. Marin Sirtis, actually. Like, I wish they had done more on the show. I wish they'd done more with that friendship. <laughs> yeah. uh, because there's some really good performances in this one, particularly when um, it's real subtle. But in their first scene together, when Beverly comes in uh, to the conference room, the observation lounge, and... Um, uh, Troy is like, where were you? And and Beverly says something like, oh, I was with a patient. And when I saw that, I was like, Troy would know that she's lying. That's weird for yeah, her to do that. Yeah, don't lie to Troy. Yeah. And then like a moment later, Data asks uh, Odon, um, was the doctor able to help you with your headache? And he was like, yes, yes, she was. And in the background, you can see Troy give a knowing smile like, oh, I see. Oh, what, like okay. she figured it out right <laughs> at that moment. Yeah. It's like one of those little touches that I just, I love the performances in this one. And anyway, so I, I wish that, that Gates got more to do and yeah. we got more dialogue from her. You know, I, 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 I wish that she had more opportunities to um, verbalize her, her conflict, which I think would have happened sooner. It, like if we could have got, if we could have gotten to the, the crisis of Odon being sick and his secret being revealed. Yeah. Maybe like one or two scenes sooner um, that would have given Beverly more time to like go back and forth and, 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 see how she felt as a character yeah. about this, um, you know, this, this foreigner and, and by foreigner, I mean, you know, this foreign entity, this, this thing that she didn't think she was in love with, but it turns out that she is how, like, why, why is that such a crisis for her in the end? Yeah, it really is. And at the end of the episode, Odin in his new host approaches Bev and essentially wants to continue, the, continue the relationship and, Crusher demurs, and in her rejection, she says, it's a human failing. She says, perhaps someday our ability to love won't be so limited. And that's kind of what, you know, everybody's mad about, basically. I mean, if she's straight, she's straight. But the way it's written, it's a huge generalization that kind of throws humanity as a species under the bus, um, suggesting that, you know, they're intolerant, at least to how it's stated. Um, well, you know, I think that's Pretty much. A, I think it's a, a ridiculous thing to say that humans by that point in, in time would be so limited in their ability to love. Uh, like, hmm. you know, not to be too gene about it, but I think by the 24th century, we'll have gotten over whatever <laughs> hangups Beverly has in this episode. But um, I also think that that's, it's a smart line of dialogue about the time in which the episode was made. And ultimately Star Trek is about the time in which it is made rather than it's, yeah. you know, it's set in the future. It's, you know, in air quotes about the future, but it's really about it's about right now. now. Yeah. And I think she is that, that line of dialogue that Beverly has is pretty spot on. Um, it's hopeful and optimistic that we could do better. And, you know, given the time, when, when did this air would this would have been 90, 1991. Oh, 91. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, 
gay people existed then queer people were falling in love um and it didn't necessarily need to be a big deal but uh, on television forget about it um i think that that is a line of dialogue as much about the um process of making television as it is about culture yeah absolutely and when you think about even the well-meaning people who make the show like uh, marvin rush the director um rejected the idea that uh, there was any like homophobic suggestion and about it. He said, uh, quote, I felt that it was more about the nature of love, why we love and what prevents us from loving. To me, the best analogy is if your beloved turned into a cockroach, could you love a cockroach? And it's like, why are you talking about cockroaches? What does that have to do with anything? That doesn't seem to frame the the argument in a in a good way. No, no, I don't. I don't love that comparison. Um, no, I will say I get I get the the interesting philosophical question here. Like what what is it that you're truly in love with when you love a person? Yeah. Um, and is it their body? Is it their mind? Is it a little of both? Yeah. So, you know, if, if Beverly boy and Beverly is so smitten, Beverly is so in love, like the way that she talks at the beginning, the first half of the episode about yeah. just how convinced she is that this is this is something special. Um, her willingness to give it up um is is a bummer and you know i've i've seen people argue that it's the change it's too much change and that's that's the real crisis <laughs> yeah. for beverly yeah and i'm you know i'm willing to accept that except that when the new host arrives at the very end she is excited to meet the person and she turns around with a big smile on her face and she's crestfallen and her face her, her just expression just goes numb when yeah. she sees that it's a woman and yeah. I don't that know, maybe it's possible that it's not the fact that it's a woman that makes her so sad. Maybe it's just her a sudden realization that she's going to have to see a new face every time something happens to this uh, body squid. Yeah. I, I, it really feels like that, that one moment where she turns around and it's like, Oh, it's a woman. And she, you know, she's using male pronouns when she doesn't realize it's a woman, you know, the, yeah. Which Worf does not correct her, by the way. Worf um, does yeah, not help like, her out Worf, at all. Maybe, <laughs> he just turns around and leaves. <laughs> maybe be like, uh, Doctor, heads up, the host is here, and I just FYI. think you should know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's just funny. And, of course, there's just the, list, just the logistical thing of, of you know, um, putting, you know, the, the, uh, the slug in a person. Like, you can try to frame it. Uh, intellectually as like, oh, you know, is she really going to love a slug? And I've, I just find that that's splitting hairs. I mean, we all have bodies that our brains control. So are you loving mm-hmm. a brain? If we could put a brain in another body, you know, would it be the same question? I think it's dodging the question. A- again, once again, not that like Bev has to be gay if she's not gay, but I, the, the the well-meaning individuals who try to, to invalidate the argument uh, or the... Um, um, the rejection that some fans had of it is that's what seems disingenuous to me. Yeah. And you know, another issue here is uh, this sort of presumes that, I don't know, this phenomenon just doesn't exist where a person's partner transitions and it's a surprise to, to the other, to the other partner. Uh, You know, if someone, you know, reveals that they have been a woman and they've not been presenting as such for, you know, a certain amount of time in a relationship, you yeah. know, that happens. I've known people whose partners unexpectedly, you know, unexpectedly to people around them transitioned. And I think that is a much more interesting um, investigation, I guess. Like what happens yeah. when that happens? Can 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 you can you go along with that? What do you do? How do you support a person that you love uh, when when they tell you that they, for one thing, are not fully who you thought they were? And how do you deal with like your 
your your anger like beverly's is i think justifiably angry at odon for keeping some information from her but i yeah. think yeah. He, he makes a good point too where she's coming from a position of privilege where he says you didn't tell me that you were a, a single i think is the, the term that he used or an unjoined or whatever it is a, a, yeah. a solitary species right you know you assume that everyone is like you and we are not we live in a pluralistic galaxy so yeah i think that's a that's a good point too that uh, you know she is she's coming from a position where she's like well everyone must be like you know the default is that we are only single entities when that's yeah it's true i i feel like that's a bit sophist on the on the part of odon i mean it, he probably knows that you know humans aren't like a joint species but it, it is a point to consider um the thing about odon's an interesting guy like you brought up the fact that he, he that he never told her and the reasons why he may or may not have. And there's a lot of headcanon, I think, needed here if you're going to consider uh, the depiction of Trills in this episode uh, and reconcile it with, you know, what we know about Trills later on. And the fun thing about something that was on TV 30 years ago is we can do whatever we want, right? <laughs> you can come mm -hmm. up with whatever you want, especially with um, extended media. You know, this character has appeared in uh, extended media. Um, there's actually a, a novel where... Um, Kareel, the new host, is killed, and the Odon symbiote is implanted in Crusher. Oh, that's so fascinating. That gets that probably gets weird, yeah. But I, he, he's almost like a like a rogue trill because he's sort of, you know, normally you know we find out later they have this thing where you get rid of your previous attachments, and he's totally ready to um, hook up with Beverly again. I think in one of those extended media books, um, they sort of explain a way that this is a colony of trills that, um, for whatever reason, they didn't have access to, um, normal trill hosts. And so they had to use a different species or sort of create their own. Um, and like trills were, trills are fascinating. Um, I had author Alex White on the show recently to talk about the DS9 episode Equilibrium. And I was throwing out some, some theories about what trill society is like. Like we, uh, we, we've talked about how it's, it's unfair that only some trill can live essentially forever and how even if they don't have money or capital in their society, those long lived trill will have an advantage. They'll be in a higher class than unjoined trill. And I think I likened um, Join Trill to nice vampires. <laughs> like they've got these long, long lives and all these skills and powers, but they want to help. But ironically, they may put a drain on their society or, or be the cause of the rigid caste system that I'm just assuming that the Trill society has. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a couple issues with the way that they're depicted here. Uh, yeah. I mean, for one thing, it's just so inconsistent with later on. But you know what? Whatever. It's just a show. Well, let's go with it. It's just a show. Relax. Yeah. <laughs> but also, you know, the the questions of, um, I don't know, class in Trill Society. I, I think it's something that's interesting that um, and, and, and good that later later Star Trek's investigated in more detail. Um, I think it's in, in DS9 that it's revealed that, you know, the the the. Um, stratification of society is kind of a sham and yeah, you yeah. know that's that's the kind of moral ambiguity that we love ds9 for yeah right <laughs> but it really does you know it, it it creates for me um it makes me think of you know very contemporary questions of how uh you know essentially the more money you have the longer you can live and that's not a hypothetical that's just the way society is uh yeah. is that fair or no it's not uh we should no. perhaps improve society somewhat so that it's not like that yeah I think this is an interesting way to get to it, like essentially like exaggerating it with the metaphor where if you are privileged, you can live forever. And that's, yeah. that's cool. For, that's cool for the privileged folks. It's cool for the privileged folks. Yeah. Um, doing a modern read of like the character just from the perspective of, of course, you know, all the years that we got of Trill and DS9, I think there's a fungibility to Odin's honesty because 
also the people that on the planet don't know that he is um, a symbiote as well. And he is posing as his own son, essentially, like um, like vampires do a lot of times in vampire Mm. fiction when they, you know, they go away and return as uh, as as their own heir. Um, I also wonder how Trill view the march of time and progress. Um, My grandmother was born the same year the Wright brothers made their first flight and she lived until a man walked on the moon. So just that stretch of time, that 60 something years, you know, we've achieved incredible things. And just to be a trill and live through the centuries, I wonder if they're just continually fascinated and tickled by the new developments in technology and transportation. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, You know, and something that I don't see a ton of um, the, I guess the, the very long view of, of progress, of change, you know, yeah. I, I could think it would be easy for a trill to become very, um, I don't know, maybe paternalistic about like, oh, you kids, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you think you've got it all figured out. Well, yeah, I don't know. Like there's, there seems like there'd be maybe a wisdom or maybe a real condescending attitude that, that a trill would have eventually. There, there would, there could, there could be a wisdom. There could also be, you know, I was thinking like individual personalities of, of trill aside, um, the joint trill could be a very Epicurean species. Hmm. Like, what's the point of living forever if you're not going to sample everything the, ca- the galaxy has to offer? You know, we see this in a big way, I think, in Curzon, and we see it to a degree in Jadzia. And the character of Odin, I think, is a lot like this in that he's all, come live with me and be my love, you know, and he's willing to blow off the negotiations for a little afternoon delight with Crusher. That's true. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder to what extent, like, hedonism essentially is a part of their lives like you know we have all this time to experience all this i mean i guess there's different approaches you could take we have all this time to experience all this stuff i've got to take it all in i got to take in the whole galaxy or you know maybe a more relaxed um pace like i've got plenty of time i don't need to rush through everything yeah i'll take uh 25 years to learn the piano real Mm -hmm. good and then I'll just be a touring musician for a while. Um, speaking of sex, something that I've tried to examine on the show is the presentation of sex on Trek. I don't feel like there is a lot of sex on Trek. And when there is, it tends to be kind of juvenile and awkward. Not in all cases, but, you know, our heroes are reading Shakespeare. They're playing the violin and they're not getting it on all that much, at least on TNG. And on TNG, we are often told that this is a world of no hangups, man. You know, you got Riza. Rikers putting on perfume. It should be a sexual paradise. But a lot of Trek stories have characters being punished metaphorically for exploring their sexuality. That's an interesting um, perspective. You know, I often think of just what a ladies' man Kirk was. You know, <laughs> n- never met a, a female presenting alien that he didn't want to have something to do with. Um, I don't know. Like, I think when I think about especially the gene years. I think sexuality is something that Trek celebrates. I, I see a lot of um, excitement for sexuality and nudity and, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's all very heterosexual, but yeah, it did seem like Gene was savvy about using sex to the show's advantage to, you know, show like, <laughs> here's, here's some, uh, um, hot captain who gets to make out with all the women. And then, you know, right. there's so much, uh, I don't know, stuff on Next Generation about like the the, the Betazoids in particular. Like, I wonder right. yeah, to what yeah. extent Gene was like, all right, this is my chance to put my hot wife on a show where she's constantly talking about getting naked. Yeah, right. 
Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was definitely a driving force for that. And it's always weird when a middle-aged, you know, male serial philanderer wants more sex in the show. But, but yeah, he did, he, he pushed for the naked joggers, you know, in the episode Justice, and he wanted Riza to be more, much more sensual. And to be fair, a lot more gay than what we eventually got on screen. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a bummer that um, the show wasn't, you know, willing to go along with, with that particular vision. But boy, oh boy, that episode, Justice is such a horny episode. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah. And when Berman uh, is explicitly at the helm of a series like Enterprise, uh, and they turn up the sex factor, we get everybody rubbing gel on each other and we get Orion strippers. So it's almost like feast or famine. It's either a little weird or it's just like in your face. Mm-hmm. And it is always, you know, under his leadership, always very um, cisgender and heteronormative. So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's not like we're getting everything, but I mean, it's it's still fun. <laughs> you know, I'm That's thinking true. of like Janeway when she's doing the in the Fairhaven episode when, you know, she's indulging her fan fiction fantasy and, and having yeah. the computer delete the wife of the sexy character. Yeah. Like, yeah. I like that. Trek, you know, not as much as maybe uh, I think Babylon 5 did more on this front, but uh, that the show is at least willing to acknowledge sometimes that people have sex. I think one of the big failings of Star Trek is, you know, that this ludicrous idea that the holodeck would be used for anything other than oh, yeah, um, yeah. sexual fantasies. Yeah. The idea that they go on there to do Shakespeare is very cute. <laughs> cute. I like that. <laughs> I mean, it is a family show, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, I do, I do like the fact that by the time we reach Voyager, I think it's kind of understood that this is what, it's like the internet. Like everybody does a little bit. Like this is kind of <laughs> exactly. what the holodeck is. Yeah, what the holodeck yeah. is for. Yeah, and nobody would have a problem with that in their future. No, I don't. Th- I mean, you got the you got the holo suites on DS nine. Um, yeah, and, yeah. But the the thing that is just like ludicrous is like Barkley goes onto the the um, holodeck and people are like, oh, you know, it's this crisis that he's using the holodeck for for fulfilling like sexual fantasies involving other members of the crew. And yes, I agree that is that is unacceptable. But the way that they present it is like that the holodeck is some like sacrosanct cultural institution that it's like going in and, and doing something, you know, debasing the um, library of Congress when come <laughs> on, <laughs> we all know what people would be doing on that, on the holodeck. Yeah. There, there, there would be some sort of uh, societal moray though, where it's like, it better, the place better be on fire before you go into somebody else's like holodeck. Uh, yes. Uh, program. Yes. <laughs> well, when Garrick interrupts Bashir, like Bashir has a strange line where he's like interrupting somebody's holodeck program is illegal. And I mean, that, that feels like a bit more, like it's maybe an invasion of privacy, but <laughs> illegal. All right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they have very lock the door if you don't want them to come laws in. Laws about that. Yeah, where's the lock on the door? Uh, I think so far that the new shows like Discovery and Picard have been pretty frank but uh, reasonable about their characters being romantic or sexual, and they ha- they have encompassed non heterosexual relationships in that representation. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I watched the first season of Discovery, I watched the pilot of Picard, and those shows did not give me what I wanted from Star Trek, which is yeah. the, um, I like the philosophy of the 60s yeah. and 90, 80s through the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't feel like I was getting that. From, I just, you know, the characters didn't glom onto me so much. Also, I found the camera work pretty dizzying on Discovery. Yeah, you're not going to get away from that. Um, and I don't mean to this, I don't mean to insult the show by saying that it's not quite as cerebral as earlier track. I mean, that is, that is a, a, a factor, but, um, but they're, you know, they're bombastic and they're exciting uh, for, for fans who are looking for that. That it is. Yeah. It's not exactly, you know, it's just, I don't know, maybe it's my nostalgia blinding me to what is good about the new series, but, um, and I'm happy that there is more queerness on those newer franchise and oh. on those newer ep- yeah. uh, shows, but you know, the, it doesn't feel like Star Trek to me. 
It, it feels like, you know, a different show. And I, honestly, I think that's good. Make a different show. Try something new. It, it can't yeah. always, it can't just be the next generation every couple of years over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the problems, I think, as the uh, Star Trek in the 90s and 2000s went forward. They kept trying to have a new premise, but also make it feel exactly like TOS or TNG. And, you know, we see how that turned out. So, yeah, I'm all about them just spinning the wheel and just I think Trek is big enough to be lots of different things. I mean, it's a it's a cartoon now. You know, it's a funny cartoon. There's going to be a kid's cartoon. Just keep making stuff. That's what I say. Trek, Trek can handle that. Yeah. The more the more Star Trek there is, the better. I'm happy. Yeah. This episode presents but doesn't quite fully explore the issue of uh, body sovereignty. Like Riker immediately, for whatever reason, because he's William Riker, he volunteers to be the surrogate for Odin, knowing nothing about the situation. But once he does, there's not too much worry about his well-being other than just like whether he's alive or not. You know, eventually Odin gives him up because he's literally going to die. But otherwise, like what he does in that body... No discussion. You know, there was a big flap in fandom recently with the movie Wonder Woman 1984, and now Steve Trevor is piloting around another man's body, and he's pursuing a relationship with Diana, and he's getting shot at, but the issue of whether it's ethical is never really addressed. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, does O'Don regard himself as a guest in Riker's body? In which case, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, like going into feet. a person's house and, and debasing a person's house. Like, not that yeah. Beverly is debasing, but, uh, you know, it, it does seem like there are issues of consent with um, this temporary host that, I don't know, maybe should have worked out with Riker ahead of time. Like, um, is you know, is anything off limits? yeah. And in the in a world, I know that this the trill is sort of new to to our heroes on the show. But in a world where you've got aliens and you've got telepathy and you've got all these things, there must be a whole new book of just uh, social do's and don'ts that you that you experience when you do you uh, when you mind meld with somebody. Uh, don't go. I have a door that says don't go in there. The holodeck thing. Um, somebody possessing you. Like you know what's okay and what's not. Yeah, honestly, I think this would have been an interesting scene if we saw like Riker and Odon talking to each other before the transfer about, you know, yeah, here, and here are my do's and don'ts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, wills and wills. when it comes to Beverly, like and, and, you know, I think it's a fascinating love triangle. Does Riker remember making out with Beverly? Yeah, I don't know. Like there's no I don't, I don't think there's 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 no scene with Riker after 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 it all i don't think beverly like i just feel like the next time beverly sees Riker in the hallway it's going to be a little awkward probably a little bit yeah yeah anyway so yeah 100 percent. <laughs> like the body sovereignty issue is uh something that is just not addressed yeah the, the relationships between the characters sometimes characters uh on the show hook up but it never leads to anything other than the established relationships that we know and maybe that is a failing of the show. I don't know. It's one of the things or one of the reasons that I say that I feel like there's just not a lot of sex and romance in the show. Um, but I did like the fact that one of Bev's objections to the whole situation isn't that he's a cockroach or something like that, but it's like he's in this guy who is my friend and my coworker. And I think of him as a brother. And yeah, I mean, he's, he's attractive, but it, that's not, that's not enough. You know, it's, will I be able to continue the relationship? Uh, with him in this way it's a great question like i i find that um really intriguing and it, you know it's again why i wish like maybe they'd sped things up by one or two scenes so we could have had mm -hmm. just a little more time with her being like i see one i, I see a person that i know yeah. but just because i see this one person doesn't mean that he's actually 
who he appears to be. So like, yeah. you know, again, like I, I think it's to the episode's credit that I didn't spend a whole lot of time wondering about like body autonomy and that kind of stuff. And like just the logistics and and, and the logic of it. Uh, and yeah. really, I, I think, you know, generally I was pretty focused on Beverly's interiority and, and what is going on with the character. Uh, what is her what is her struggle to to come to terms with this unexpected situation? Can she bring herself to love somebody? And ultimately, tragically, no, the answer is no. Yeah. And I think a lesser show would have made tried to make more out of um, the connection between Riker and Crusher. Whereas in this case, I, I take it on. Uh, I, I take, you know, you, you've told me show that everybody's cool about sex and stuff like that in the 24th century. And so an alien causes two coworkers to have sex, uh, but they respect each other and they, they know that that's not going to happen again. And that's fine. Like you can, I think you can buy that from the show. Riker, Riker's a cool dude. He's all about consent. Yeah. Yeah. He is. Absolutely. Like I, this is what I like. I don't know. I would, would have really enjoyed a scene where Riker and Odon talk about their different approaches <laughs> to to physicality and, and, and I don't know what, what can be, what is appropriate to do with the body and, uh, you know, for Riker to find out like, Oh, by the way, I've been making out with Beverly and I plan to do the same while I'm in your body. That would have been an interesting scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of characters uh, interacting with Odin, uh, there is a, whenever uh, Crusher gets a boyfriend, they have to sort of um, have Picard hanging around uh, the edges mm. of the story. And so, again, like this character of Odin, I, like I don't know how good of a guy he is because he goes to Picard and he's thanking him for um, all of the consideration he's received on the ship. And then he makes a special effort to talk about Beverly and how what a wonderful person she's, she is. It's such is a just, weird scene. It is. And Picard, you know. Picard's Picard. He's like, yep, great. Anything else? Okay, cool. Um, but I did like the fact that later on, once Beverly's going through everything that she is, uh, Picard could, he's chosen to sort of stay out of it, but he does make the effort to go and say, look, I know this is weird and, you know, you and I have we've got something, but forget all that. Like, I'm your friend. You can, you know, come to me for support. You can tell me whatever you need to do. I'm here if you need me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's um, supportive and, I guess, you know, nice. Uh, it's definitely, he seems uncomfortable with the o- Odon at first, um, be, you know, asking mm-hmm. a very weird question about, like, how committed is Beverly to Starfleet? Like, what a <laughs> yeah, question right. to ask. <laughs> yeah, is she going to run off with me? Yeah. But then <laughs> later think? when Picard's like, I'm here for you, like, uh, this is this is a Beverly-Picard situation that I like, where they are old friends and... Um, there is a spark between them, but neither one of them knows what to make of it. And they may be afraid of changing the relationship to something that they don't want it to be. So I, I'm, I'm very happy with um, the episodes where they get to explore that, you know, their, their breakfast together are always very wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I like, I like, you know, again, I wish there had been more time for it. I like their dynamic and I wish there'd been more time to explore it in this episode. I've never really shipped them. I think maybe when I first, started watching the show when I was younger, I thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. They're, they're good together. But as I've gotten older and I guess been involved in more relationships myself, I, I think that their friendship and their connection is is really important. And, you know, just like in real life, you, you wouldn't want to ruin that necessarily. Um, I know that we see in the finale, we see a future, a possible future where they got married and obviously got divorced right away. So I wonder if that would be the fate for those two characters. If in you know the real timeline, they did eventually get together. Mm. Yeah. I do feel like, um, I don't know. Friends is the right place for them um, in, in mm. part because they're, uh, they're so, they're so evenly matched. They're so similar in so many ways that I wonder if, yeah. uh, 
I don't know, like romance just just wouldn't be right for who they are as a couple. Yeah, I think I, I agree. Let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Hmm, I don't know. I think it's got to be Picard. I, like every yeah. time somebody asks me this, I have a different answer just depending on my mood. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I like the nuance of Patrick Stewart's performance. Yeah, I agree. Um, they were so lucky to get him. Um, and I, I think that he made a really good decision in, in joining this show, going from uh, where he was and then taking this uh, this weird you know, sci-fi show that was syndicated, not even on a network. But uh, I'm glad that he made that decision. Me too. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I like stellar cartography. That's my favorite room on the yeah? ship. Okay, sure. Uh, specifically um, charting you know, new uh, sectors and new areas or looking at um, phenomenon in particular? Gosh, I just I just really like maps. I haven't really thought far ahead. I just really like <laughs> maps. I, honestly, I'd enjoy being like the planetarium director who puts on like shows for the kids or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> when I grew up, um, I grew up in Connecticut, and we'd go to Boston a lot. And the um, the the theater there, I can't remember that the that the Boston Science Museum. Um, Leonard Nimoy was the voice, like the pre-show voice, yeah. who would acquaint you with the. Uh, with, with the theater, like there's this little pre-show with, with Leonard Nimoy doing a voiceover. And so, I don't know, like the Star Trek connection to a planetariums and uh, giant domes full of stars is is very strong for me. Well, Anson Baum, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Best place is to look me up on Twitter, Matt Baum, M-A-T-T-B-A-U-M-E. You can find me there. You can also check out my videos over on YouTube, youtube.com slash Matt Baum. I have a new video about Garrick and Bashir about the 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 space gaze that 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 never were until fans made it happen (laughs) uh and you know also check out my website mattbaum.com i got a little newsletter there with sneak peeks at what i'm working on next that's great well thanks again for joining me we are signing off until the next mission hailing frequencies closed Mikan Hana. And I'm Caliban. I'm a huge Sailor Moon fan. I've been a Moonie since the beginning. I've seen every episode, every movie. I've read all the manga. I love it. I've got a head full of bad wiring and I've never seen a single episode. Do you want to join the wonderful world of Sailor Moon? Okay. Enter laughing. It's hard to believe that that was us. It feels like ancient history. We recorded that a few minutes ago. Ancient history, but but now that I'm a Sailor Moon expert. You're not an expert? But I'm trying. Every week on Sailor Noob, we talk about a new episode of the original Sailor Moon series. It's all new to me. And I'm a little more seasoned. I've been a Japanese language student and I've lived in Japan. And you use your experiences to talk about the food, fashion, and culture of every episode of Sailor Moon. What do you do again? Uh, share in the wonder of a classic anime series. Good enough. Sailor Noob is a great companion for first-time watchers, and it is a fun hit of nostalgia for the experienced fan. You can catch the show every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr, posting all things Sailor Moon. One day I shall be the master. Let's just get through this series first. Okay. Okay.